Welcome to Conquering Columbus. We'd like to open by thanking all of our incredible sponsors. The Burlett Family Foundation is a local nonprofit that's committed to helping their partners build upon their strengths. They turn visions of what if into sustainable resources for the community. Cluster Truck is America's first delivery only kitchen. With Cluster Truck, you can do convenient group ordering. There's always something for everyone, and it's guaranteed to be hot and fresh. The people have spoken. Visit clustertruck.com today. Reichert Automotive is Central Ohio's premier car dealership, and they're flat-out experts in online selling and remote service. Whether it's buying your new car online or getting your car serviced, new or used, Reichert will handle it all without you ever having to leave your house. Visit reichert.com today. One Columbus is committed to making Columbus the most prosperous region in the United States. They're focused on helping existing businesses grow and compete while diversifying the economy through attraction of new businesses and supporting newly formed high-growth enterprises. Together, we will conquer. To learn more, visit columbusregion.com. Claris R&D is passionate about putting money back into the hands of hardworking innovators. Using their cloud-based accounting software, Claris R&D has helped companies claim over $30 million in R&D tax credits, many of them here in Ohio. Founded in Columbus by a team of tax experts and entrepreneurs, Claris specializes in R&D credits for technology-based startups and SMBs. Visit clarisrd.com today. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast in partnership with Tim Trad and the team over at Only in Seabus. We've got a great episode for you guys today and a great interview. Uh, our next guest really needs no introduction, but just in case, Coach Urban Meyer is a retired college football coach with over 18 years of experience as a head coach of NCAA Division I teams. And as a coach, Urban led three of his teams to national titles. He was the head coach at The Ohio State University from 2011 to 2019, leading the Buckeyes to six major bowl appearances and winning the first ever college football playoff in 2015. And today, Urban works with Ohio State as the assistant athletics director of athletics initiatives and relations, as well as with Fox Sports as an analyst. We're extremely excited to have Coach Meyer today to learn more about his story and his plans for the future. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Coach Meyer. Great to be with you guys. We appreciate you taking some time to join us today. And uh, typically one of the first places we always like to start is take a step back, learn a little more about your early life and career. Anything that highlights for you from childhood, college, how you got into football, you know, and anything along the way there. Yeah, I, uh, I knew it. I was one of those people at a very young age. I knew I wanted to coach and I wanted to play sports. They were everything for me growing up, you know, following professional football, basketball, and baseball. Those are three sports really followed. And I just knew I wanted to be a coach. And back in my era, I would actually read articles on coaches, you know, the Tom Osborne's, Joe Paterno's, Bobby Bowden's back then, and obviously Bo Schembechler, Woody Hayes, and 
and I would just study. So I knew at a very young age that I wanted to play as long as I could, and then I wanted to coach. So I was, I was very lucky in that regard. So what about childhood in terms of siblings, parents? Did you grow up in a household that placed a lot of weight on athletics, or what did that look like? Education was always number one. My father was brilliant. He was a chemical engineer, and my two sisters are the kind of people they, they never saw a B, you know, straight A's. And I had to work real hard, and but it was a very clear parameters about doing the right thing and very strict family. My dad was tougher than nails, and my mom was awesome. We had we had the we had the great family, and and the three of us have, you know, all have graduate degrees, all went on to do good things academically, and so academics were number one priority. And number two were athletics. And you could never, and I kind of did this with my own kids, you weren't allowed to come home. So after school, you know, you're not coming home and you're not allowed to get a job. So you better be working on school. You better be in the school play, drama, debate team, French team, athletics. I really agreed with the way we were raised that you had to be involved in your school. And uh, we've done the same thing with our kids. Did you play any sports outside of football growing up? Basketball and baseball and and. uh Really, my whole life, baseball and football ended up being the two sports though, that I played. Were you playing any sports there at college? And what was your experience like at Cincinnati? Uh, why Cincinnati? I actually got drafted by the Atlanta Braves right out of high school. And I signed a professional baseball contract. I played for two years in the Braves organization. Went to school in the offseason. Missed football dearly. I uh, knew that football was my first love. But baseball was probably a little better than, you know, I was, I was a better baseball player. Struggled in the minor leagues my first year, second year, got hurt, and then got cut. Ironically, Hank Aaron cut me. <laughs> and then I went uh, to the University of Cincinnati and played college football. So when you played defensive back, uh, did you ever think that you were going to potentially have a career there? Or was it? did you know you wanted to coach from day one? I to play uh, as long as you know, I think everyone has dreams of going to the NFL. But I had... Uh, you know, obviously not the talent to move on to the NFL. And so that was pretty obvious early. Same with baseball. You know, I, I wanted to make the major leagues, but you could tell that, you know, I just didn't have that talent, worked really hard at it. And so my near the end of my career, I could tell that having a 15-year career in the NFL or Major League Baseball probably wasn't happen. So I started getting ready for uh, college coaching, and I applied to Ohio State, a bunch of places. And uh, I went to graduate school at Ohio State, and that's where my coaching career began. And Playing defensive back, right? I mean, what's interesting to me is that, you know, as a, as a coach, you're known for your offenses and, you know, the speed of your offense and the style of your offense. But you played as a defensive back. You would think that as a defensive back, you'd lean towards a defensive coaching style, but you really stood out with your offense. You know, did you study the game a lot or, you know, what do you think contributed to that? I got called up to Ohio State to interview for there were two positions open, a tight end position and a defensive back position. And this is back in 1986, I believe. Yeah, 1986. Well before cell phones. And and so I'm sitting in the office and Earl Bruce is the head coach. And I'm waiting for my, they call me up to interview. And I'm sitting there and one of the other young coaches, graduate assistants comes by and they said, hey, introduce himself and what are you here for? And I said, I'm interviewing for the GA spots. He said, well, make sure you get the offensive one. And I was like, well, I no more really never played offense other than high school. And he said, doesn't matter take the offensive one because on defense, it's nothing but a gopher. You're making coffee, making copies all day long. You're not really coaching on offense. And right then, Earl Bruce has come on in. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. And I walk in. And it was a tight end. I've never played tight end in my life. And so I sit down, and, and he looks right at me, and he, and he says, tell me you're from and your background. He says, well, what position are you looking at? And something came over me, and I said, tight ends. 
And he looked at me and he said, okay. And I'm, I started sweating bullets because I don't know a thing about tight ends. And uh, right then a phone call comes in and the secretary comes walking in and she says, some big recruit was on the phone. He said, well, he looks at me, he says, you know what, you'll be fine. Get with coach, you know, one of the other coaches. They'll get you set up. We'll hire you because I had some good recommendations. And I'm thinking, holy cow. <laughs> I mean, if he, if he had me get up and teach them tight ends, I would have got thrown out of the office. So I became a tight end GA, and I worked real hard at it. So eventually you make it to your, your first head coaching job at Bowling Green. Talk about what that experience was like. You know, what was going through your mind when you first got that position, and, and what was it like building that program? I was at Notre Dame. And I had Lou Holtz and Earl Bruce, my mentors, and they pushed me real hard. A lot of people know this story. And all of a sudden, I get a phone call. They asked me, they liked, I was very young, 35 years old. And they said, we'd like to interview for the head coaching job. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm not sure I really want to do this. I'm happy we're at Notre Dame. I actually love Notre Dame. But Coach Earl Bruce and Lou Holtz were very adamant and pushed me. So I interviewed, thinking I'm not going to get the job. And I end up interviewing. Two days later, I get the phone call that they'd like to hire me. And I pray and I think about it. I said, you know, I'm just, I don't want to do this. So I turn it down. I call Earl Bruce and he cusses me out for about 10 minutes. And then I call Lou Holtz and Lou Holtz. And I said, coach, I'm not going to take the job. And he yells at me and very upset. And he says, well, why not? And I said, coach, I just don't believe this is a good job. They were one in 10 or two and nine, you know, not very good program. And he, right over the phone, he says, well, of course, it's not a good job. If it was a good job, they wouldn't be calling you. So the point is that, who do you think you are? You know, I, I was a young guy. I look at my wife. I hang up the phone. I said, I'm going to call back and take that job because that was one of the greatest pieces of advice I ever got. You know, don't, what do you think? Ohio State's going to call me back then. I was a nobody and nothing. Go make it a great job. So that was a great story. Right. Yeah. It's a, I mean, a really impactful story and, and something to, to think about. I think what's unique about, you know, your first two head coaching roles with Bowling Green in Utah is you walked into a job that, you know, wasn't quite as established or a program that wasn't as established as say Florida or Ohio state. What were some of the unique things and the aspects of coaching at those programs that were different from coaching at say a Florida or an Ohio state? I was very fortunate because I got to do things not in the, in the spotlight. And I was very young, you know, and I made some mistakes and, you know, it was a chance to, you know, learn on the run. You know, we took a program that was very bad, one and nine and two. I think I think we're two and ten or two and nine, one and ten. Six straight losing seasons, and it really needed uh, an overhaul. You know, the coach was an excellent coach, but it kind of went sideways. And and so I went into the place. I'm a very young coach, kind of a maniac back then. And and here we go and take over a program that hadn't won in several years. And a bunch of kids quit. I kicked a bunch of kids off the team because they really didn't belong there. And a group of seniors stuck together, and we ended up winning nine games and beat Missouri in our first game in front of 85,000 people on the road. So that was a great experience. And then I went to a magical place called Utah. It's really an incredible place. And, and they were kind of a five and six, five and seven team and had a very good coach, but they just couldn't win the championship. And we won the first championship in 60 years there. And then our second year, go undefeated, Florida. So it was great for me. It was great for our coaches to, you know, we were starting to spread offense back then. Not many people really were one of the first teams to ever do that. So it was a great learning curve for all of us. So, you know, one of the philosophies that you talk about are this, these criteria, the culture criteria for elite performing organizations. And, you know, a fellow friend between all of us, Coach Ryan, talks about them as terms of non-negotiable teams. So as you evolved through your coaching career before you got to Florida and Ohio State, how did the, the criteria of who you decided to bring onto the team and who you recruited, how did that evolve and change? 
Oh, talent acquisition. And I really learned this from Coach Belichick and some of the other great coaches in the NFL. And I never really, I always had a vision of what I wanted the program to look like. And we can talk about culture next, but talent acquisition, really, that's, you hit the two things as a leader. I don't care if it's corporate America, if it's in the military, I don't care if it's in uh, athletic teams. Your number one is to implement and develop and implement a culture. Number two is talent acquisition. And you have to have a planned criteria to say when I was 35, 36 years old, I really understood that. That's incorrect. But by the time we got to Ohio State, I had a real clear set of criteria that I would hold our coaches accountable. I would not recruit the athlete unless they fit these criteria. And we made very, very few mistakes at Ohio State in recruiting because of that. And you look at teams in the NFL that have a very set system, like the Patriots, like the Saints, like some of these really good organizations, they don't make many mistakes. And then there's other organizations that don't have any criteria and they make a ton of mistakes. So right now I'm actually reading, rereading a book called Extreme Ownership. And the policy kind of reminds me a lot of it. But one of the things that they mention in the book is, you know, as a leader, it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate that sets the tone for the culture. And something that came across to me with the Ohio State program in the recent years is that not only has the culture really been set, but even after you left, that culture was maintained by Coach Day and others. And it seems like the team was holding each other accountable, uh, you know, it, within what I've seen on social media and, the, and following the team. Did you get that sense? And how did you instill that type of a culture in the team, if so? Well, that's exactly right. And that's the only way to have a championship culture. You know, coaches are responsible for setting a culture with great clarity. But ultimately, it's the players. And if you do a good job of, first of all, talent acquisition, bringing the right kind of people in and very have a great clarity in what you expect from them, it's called the culture, leaders drive that culture. And at the end of the day, leaders drive culture, culture drives behavior, and behavior produces results. And that's called the performance pathway. And that's what you just said is an absolute, that's an absolute truth. Is that, and, that, and once again, the great organizations are, and I, I just like to brag about the Patriots because I'm Mike Vrabel and Teddy Bruschi, Tom Brady, when those guys, I used to study them all the time. It's like, my gosh, you know, they, they hold each other accountable. They police from within. Uh, there's an elite culture and that if someone doesn't fit that, the players take care of that. And it got that way at Ohio State. It's still that way at Ohio State. And uh, very proud of that. Okay. Well, so speaking of leadership, right, you know, there were some big games at Ohio State, you know, in a couple of key situations, but what were some of the biggest games, the biggest moments that you had at Ohio State where you felt like you saw a lot of leadership out of maybe particular players or the team? I mean, the one that comes to mind for me is, you know, the 2017 Penn State game where JT Barrett brought us back, but I'm sure there's plenty of other moments. So what, what do you see as the big moments, the big leadership moments that you've seen throughout your career? Well, you, you have to ask yourself, what does that mean? And, and I'm, I think this is very strong. I'm glad you asked that. So leadership and culture are exposed when? They're exposed in the most difficult times. They're not exposed when you're playing a team or, or you know, when you're wrestling a team that's not very good or that you should win and everybody's healthy, everybody's playing great. That's called front runner. That's called, you know, that's called performing well. But your culture and your leadership doesn't get exposed until bad things happen, until you get caught in that storm. And you mentioned one, you know, we're down two or three scores in the fourth quarter against Penn State at home. And he takes us back and completes 16 straight balls and we win the game. I think back in 2014 when Braxton Miller, our best player, Heisman Trophy candidate, goes down a week before the game and JT Bear takes over and takes us all the way to the 
rivalry game, and then a third-string quarterback goes in and wins a national championship. I mean, that's leadership and culture. That's not just pure talent. Because it was pure talent, then he would have played many, you know, people who say something like that, they don't really comprehend what drives a player to perform at a very high level. It's culture and leadership. And those are two great examples. And we were very, you know, Nick Bosa, our best player in 2000 and what was it, 18, goes down. He doesn't play the whole year. And we end up winning the Rose Bowl and finishing number three in the country. That's culture and leadership. So there's been many examples. You gave one. I gave a couple. But that's that's really what, if you say, what's one thing you miss? I miss that. I miss that because deep in your heart, you know, I've done that for so long. I could tell the teams that had the great culture and great leadership, but I could also tell the ones that did not. And there's nothing quite like leading the team that's built the right way with a strong leadership and a strong culture. I remember watching that game uh, when Penn State, you know, Saquon, just the freak athlete that he was, and taking that kick back and just going down. And I was, I was watching at a bar and I just remember everyone freaking out, but watching the team and thinking if I was there, I would have had, I would have been freaking out, but I had this like sense of peace almost watching the guys. Like they should be like what you're talking about under, when you put them under stress. And I just had this like, man, I think we got this just watching those players. So I feel like the culture that Ohio state that you helped build there, you could almost feel it when watching, you know what I mean? Whereas a, a smaller team would have, or a, a weaker team would have mentally given up. Uh, our guys where the score wasn't good, watching them yeah. respond was, was really, really impressive. A winning culture, you really don't lose. Sometimes you run out of time. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes things happen, but the mentality of a great culture is, you know, we're not going to lose. You know, even that, that you know, you, you bring about that 17 and really 2018, same thing happened up at, at Penn State in the whiteout. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're down two scores in the fourth quarter, but you know, winning culture, winning a bunch of great leaders is, you know, things happen in athletics, but we're not, we're not going to lose this game. You know, I just hope we don't run out of time. Just keep going, keep going. And that was mentality. And so that culture too is often driven uh, maybe entirely from the top down mostly. And, and it filtrates to everybody on the team, but it's about you and, and the coach that you have around you. So as you recruited your staff and you picked the people that were going to surround you in life, you know, what attributes did you respect the most in the, in the coach that you brought on and what did you pay attention to? in terms of who you were going to let inside of your your team and your culture? I really worked hard on this. That you know, It goes back to the talent acquisition. Talent acquisition is not just about the, you know your employees or student-athletes or whomever. It's also your support staff, your coaching staff. And, and so I put together five criteria that I've always looked for. And number one is ultra-competitive. Elite competitors are number one. Number two, you have to be tough. Toughness means you just gotta you gotta be a tough individual. And in college football and college athletics and wrestling and toughness is a key component of athletics. And uh, number three is you have to be a leader. Number four, you have to be very intelligent to understand a very complex game. And number five, you have to be very adaptable. And those are qualities that I've always looked for. On top of that, obviously, I want great people that are good husbands, good fathers. You know, I don't want to. That one issue we dealt with a coaching staff that hurt us. But, you know, for the most part, I've always just wanted to make sure we hire really quality people. Hey there, Conquerors. We're going to take a quick break in the show to tell you about one of our sponsors. North Star Cafe is open for carryout, serving healthy and wholesome food for curbside pickup and delivery. All your favorites are available. Our classic cheeseburger, ground in-house from Nyman Ranch, Chuck and Brisket, topped with aged cheddar on a golden brioche bun to our egg sandwich, prepared with warm buttermilk biscuits, two eggs, cheddar cheese, not to mention our carryout cocktails. 
Blend it with top-shelf liquors, organic simple syrups, and fresh fruit juices. Order online at our website to prepay and choose fast and friendly curbside to have your food delivered to your car. While you're on our website, check out the menus for Brassica and Third and Hollywood too. On that note of really quality people, you know, you made the decision to step down from coaching at Ohio State and you left the hands in Coach Day. And earlier you mentioned, hey, who am I? I'm some young guy that Ohio State isn't going to come calling. But Coach Day, you know, is also a young guy in his first head coaching role. What made you feel like you were leaving the program in good hands with Coach Day? And why did you decide to step down the time you did? Uh, it goes back to our relationship started back in 2005 when we were in Florida. I was very impressed with him then. And then I followed him throughout his career. And then he worked for my closest friend at Boston College. And then he went to the NFL and worked with Chip Kelly. And I got to visit with him. And, and I always thought about getting him back on our staff if the opportunity rose. And it did. And I got him back. And, and I could tell right away, you know, I was kind of, I had some uh, health issues. I had the surgery, brain surgery back in 2014 spring. I have dealt with a, a cyst in my head for many years and, and I just kind of knew 55 was kind of the target I was thinking, or you know, I knew I wasn't going to coach till I'm 70 years old. And part of a, being a leader, and I saw Bob Stewart, Stoops do it at Oklahoma, is find the right guy. You know, I feel I'm very biased. I feel Ohio State has the best football program in America. The infrastructure is incredible. The recruiting, academics, weight room, discipline, everything is right there. I didn't want all those people to lose their jobs. And when I found when Ryan Day had a chance, the actor's first year got called to be a head coach in the SEC, and I talked to him, and that's when we started the plan. You know, I thought I might go for maybe one more year, but I also felt I love Ohio State. I knew Ohio State had great football players. I knew it was going to, you know, I'd be a mess if right now Ohio State was bad. But I knew if we left, the, you know, we, we kept the strength coach, the recruiting coordinator, the all the people involved. And then Ryan Day is an elite coach, an elite person, elite recruiter, that it would, you know, maybe even get stronger. And that's what you're seeing. So I also knew Ryan would keep the right people around him. Obviously, as Ohio State fans, I mean, your your track record speaks for itself and success that you've had in, you know, four different schools. But as Ohio State fans, what does it feel like to have the legacy of never losing to Michigan? I know you were announced two days after the last time that we lost to Michigan in 2011. So is that something that you kind of, is there an extra pride in that, knowing that they uh, that you were kind of untouchable to those guys? You know, I, I have such great respect for that rivalry. I have great respect for that school and that program. And uh, I grew up in the 10-year war where Woody Hayes and Bo Schembechler were going at it. And I just, it's part of your DNA. And it's something that, as I tell people that, you know, I like to meet a person that respects a rivalry more than I do more than our players and, our, and Ryan Day does now because he was brought up in it. And you don't talk about it. You don't say negative things about their program. You just work every day at it. And the fact that our, our players worked at that, that wasn't good fortune. It wasn't luck. It wasn't. It was a fact our players worked so hard at that game throughout the whole year. That's why we won. Yeah, I think that's something with the way sports are right now. I think that's being felt a lot more as the, uh, the lack of competition is there. But when you have a good opponent, it makes that even better. You know, if you're watching a game and I would like to watch with my friends who are Michigan fans because it, it added an extra layer, you know, I don't hate them. Obviously I want to beat them, but if I watch somebody who's indifferent, it's not as fun. So that's something I've realized personally is that having that nemesis almost or that worthy opponent always makes that victory even more satisfying. Is there any way that we can get you to say which 
I mean, you, you coached in the SEC and you coached in the Big Ten, obviously two of the most storied and the biggest you know, conferences. Uh, can, can we get you to pick which one you like better? When you say which one you like, uh, I think the SEC is top to bottom, the most difficult conference in America. I mean, it is uh, intense as you can imagine. The recruiting, you're all recruiting against each other. The stadiums and, uh, you know, it was incredible. When I first got to the Big Ten, quite honestly, the Big Ten was very average. The stadiums were okay. You know, the teams weren't, you know, I wouldn't put them uh, upper echelon. You know, Big Ten had a history of getting to the big game or getting the SEC and losing. And, you know, we changed that when we beat Alabama. And, and then I think the other teams in the conference have done a really nice job hiring good staffs and putting a premium on recruiting and improving the game day atmosphere. So I think the Big Ten is very comparable to the SEC now. It certainly was not in 2012. I think it's right there. Those are the two top conferences and the top, you know, the top of the Big Ten can certainly play with the top of the SEC. But I think the SEC top to bottom, even their teams that don't finish very high in the standings are very good teams. So you reflect back on this chapter of your life and, and what you've achieved and where you're at today. And curious to know, you know, when we talked to Coach Ryan about this, he said one of the things that always drove him in life was a burning desire to not be average. Do you ever or have you ever sat back and reflected on what drives you in life and why you wanted, did, did you have your eyes set on success or were you just so passionate about football that you kept pursuing things to a higher level? It's funny how the, it, it changed with me is that I've always been ultra competitive and, you know, just the whole losing thing. It's hard. You know, I, people say lose character. I, I disagree with that. If you're a competitor, losing doesn't build characters. Hopefully it drives you to do whatever you can to not lose. And I always say, as long as they're keeping score, try to win. So I, I, that's probably my greatest strength as a competitor and work so hard to, to not lose and teach your team and your players and your coaches and everybody that that's the culture we have. It's an elite culture and we win. And the plan we give you is infallible. It will work. Just follow the plan. Those are, it sounds like a team meeting. So I would say that my greatest strength was work ethic and just a competitive nature that, and I would instill that in our players in our program. And, um, I get very close with people, you know, we're kind of like-minded creatures that those are kind of generally the people I like to be around are highly, highly competitive people that don't want to lose. Coach, uh, with everything you got going on currently, we know you know, analysts at Fox Sports, and uh, but what are some of the other initiatives you've got going on? What are the other things you're working on when you're not working with Fox? Well, I'm really involved with uh, Ohio State. I'm assistant athletic director. I uh, work on the Leadership Institute with all 36 sports. I do donor events. Uh, I teach a class in the School of Business, Fisher School of Business, and then I'm Fox Television. So still very busy and enjoying two grandkids, three children, and living life. And one more deep one for you. Curious, you know, someone at your level, again, who has achieved your success, you don't hear a lot about their struggles or days of lack of motivation. You know, as you as you climb through your career, even present day to day, is every day, you know, full motivation? Do you wake up, you know, firing, ready to go? Or have you had your down times? And if so, you know, what motivated you to make it through those? Plenty of down times. I think we all have. And, and I think, you know, when you, when you start talking about the highest level of, in my mind, college football is highest level. I can't imagine much more competitive situation, especially when it's played out in front of hundreds of thousands and millions of people on television and high expectations. So, you know, my faith has always been very strong, at times not as strong as it should be, like we all slipped. And I've had many conversations with Coach Ryan about that, but my faith has gotten me through, you know, 17 years of being a head coach at a very high level and raising a wonderful family where God's always a part of our family and always will be. And it's, I'm so proud of that. 
Um, number two was family. I mean, I have three children, two grandkids that I'm very blessed and we're, we are extremely close and they're all very successful, great people and a wife of 30, almost 31 years. And then I have very close friends that I, I don't have many. I, I live a very tight life, but you know, you hear people talk about faith, family and friends and that's, that's what's gotten me through to this point and will continue to get me through. Well, Coach, I think a good place to head towards our last question of the show, unless Josh, do you guys have any other ones? No, I just want to, I mean, I just want to say thank you so much for 2014, man. That, uh, that season, like the amount that that meant and just winning the first college football playoff, the story of the third string quarterback coming in, I mean, just like, I obviously didn't play, but being, I felt a part of it. And so just that, that will forever be such a, uh, a huge part of my life and such a great memory that I feel like you were very uh, heavily responsible for. Incredible run, man. And that was uh, when you really, it was illogical for that team to win it after the injuries we had. And mm-hmm. that'll go down as one of the great teams in college football history. Absolutely. I, feel, I, Absolutely. I find a lot of joy reminding people that the third string quarterback won that too. It's just, <laughs> I feel like that stack gets left out a lot. Well, uh, coach, the, the final question is centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, and that is live uncomfortably. And, uh, you know, without telling you too much about why we chose that particular theme, what do you think of? when you hear the phrase, how does it resonate with you in, in your life and career? Well, I, I, it, I use a similar term and it's embrace discomfort. And I think greatness, uh, whether it be as a parent, whether it be as a husband, whether it be as a Christian, whether it be as a professional, whatever you're doing, but embrace the grind, embrace the, you know, that's, uh, I want to make sure that when I teach the class, there's, you know, you got to be careful how you say this, but there's one, there's one guarantee in this world. And that's, hard work will be rewarded. And it just if it's not rewarded immediately, it will. And that's what makes us the greatest country in the world. Hard work is rewarded. And in hard work, you have to embrace discomfort. And I love how you said that. It'll live uncomfortably. And that's, you know, dis- uh, comfort is at times uh, we're creatures of habit, and we're going to take the easier, that's God created us, we're fallen men and impulsive decisions and making decisions purely for comfort. Most of the time, those aren't the right decisions. And so I love that. And I do agree with it. Well, uh, Coach Meyer, thanks so much for your time today and, and sharing your story on our show. We really appreciate it. Thanks, brother. Yeah, thanks Thank so you. much. And uh, Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. We'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.